I hope you brought your Bible with you. And let's open them up together to John chapter 8. And we'll be reading together in verse 31 through verse 47. I hear the Bible pages turning. That's always a good sound. And uh, appreciate your bringing your Bibles so we can study together. I'll read this and then we'll pray and ask the Lord's help to understand and obey it. This is verse 31, John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. Verse 39. They answered him. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them. If you were Abraham's children. You would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth. That I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we need your help. And I'm sure we'll see if we pay attention to this passage that is your inspired word that we're going to need help to understand just as these people you are speaking to needs help to understand. There's a natural blindness that we have to your word and to your truth. And Lord, we ask that you overcome that as you overcame the power of sin. Teach us today. May we learn and may we obey. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, this passage is among those passages uh, known or described as the hard sayings of Jesus. And this is a hard saying. 
and uh, to ask ourselves how we feel about the hard sayings of Jesus probably has a lot to do with who or whom we think those hard sayings are directed to. So long as it's not directed to me, I like the hard sayings of Jesus just fine. In fact, you might even think that that's, that's the type of preaching you like to hear, is when the Word of God carries it to the people that need to hear it. And the harder, the better. But what if it's aimed right between your eyes? A hard saying. Something that's maybe surprising. And the very hard part of the saying is that it challenges the assumption we make that we are a lot closer to Jesus than we actually are. The reason why it's so hard to hear is because it's saying to us that we're not as close as we think we are or should be. And that would make it indeed a hard saying. Now, we need to make sure we know who is talking to whom in this passage to get started to kind of uh, set the stage and we'll work through it a paragraph at a time. And uh, this is one of those messages that's more or less a big fat implication at the end than a lot of points along the way. We're just going to follow their conversation uh, through to the paragraph break. But if we were to back up to verse 30, which is where we stopped last week, we can connect these two paragraphs very well, and I think it'll be uh, very helpful. If you look at that last verse of the previous passage, we covered last week, verse 30. As he, that's Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. And we thought to ourselves last week, that's a good thing, isn't it? Unless, of course, their belief is like the belief we saw in chapter 2. But interestingly enough, look at verse 31, right up against verse 30. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. So this whole paragraph, these two that we just read, are addressed to the people who say or said they believed in the previous passage. So there are people that have gotten on to the bandwagon since our last installment, and now Jesus is addressing them. Now it's been a while, almost a year. It's tough to remember last week or the week before or the month before, but a whole year's worth of sermons ago. We were in chapter 2 of John's Gospel. And let me read to you what we studied then. And we made a big deal out of this because it's not going to go away. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Same as is being said here. When they saw the signs that he was doing. And that was some impressive signs. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. Because he knows their hearts. For he himself knew what was in man. In other words, they believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them. And later in chapter 6, which was just a month or so ago, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus begins to teach. And the things that he begins to say are hard sayings. And the people begin to walk away. And we learned there that a lot of people that got on the bandwagon in chapter 2 got off in chapter 6. So the forecast here, what we just read, is that more hard sayings are coming. So how is Jesus going to respond to the people that just got on the bandwagon? Because we know that his retention rate for followers has been abysmal 
Most of them have walked off, so will he change course? Will he tell them what they want to hear? Will he change his message? Or will we see, as we've seen already, that the truth is more important than what they think? And he's going to give them the truth, regardless of their reaction as to what he has said. That's what we're looking at this morning. So when we get to verse 31, with controversy at an all-time high, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now to us, sitting in church pews, that sounds like a, that sounds like a passage fit for needlepoint. Right? You might have it in needlepoint. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. People have used that in a whole host of ways that it was not meant to be used for. Jesus is saying some very specific things. Again, more propositional truth. And he's going to draw a line for us that, that we haven't yet seen. We hear John talking about what the people uh, believe and how Jesus thought about what they believed and, and whether or not that faith was faulty or whether or not it was true saving faith. But here Jesus is telling these people who say they believe in him what that actually looks like. And so let's, let's parse this out. This, this very well-known couple of verses in John 8. Starts out with the word if. So this is conditional, right? If this happens, then you can expect something else. And what he says is if you abide... The word abide means to remain or to stay or to reside. Kind of like moving in, abide, live, stay, reside somewhere. And that is, if you abide in my word. What is his word? Well, his word is his message. He's been teaching. There's certain things that he's been building on. Very dramatic themes of light and darkness and death and life. Uh, that he's been sent by his father, all of those things. That's his message. So if you remain, stay, reside, abide in my message, you buy it. Then you are truly, the word truly means really or genuinely, legitimately, my disciples. A disciple is a follower or a learner. So what Jesus is clearly saying here is that there's a difference between a true disciple and a fake disciple. He doesn't use the word fake. But when you say true, legitimate, genuine, real, then that stands over against what would fall short. The real ones have ears to hear his words. And if you notice here, let's be good students. It says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Not you will be. So it's not like you have to work up to this and to gain Christ's approval by your works, by abiding in His Word. No, the ones who are truly my disciples are abiding in my Word. So this is the credentials, the list, the requirements, probably even better, the, the indicators, the marks of true followers of Christ. But that's not how these people who are listening are going to see it. But let's just make sure we've got what we've got so far. If you abide, stay, reside, live 
my word, truly you are my disciple. Now, I'm not going to take for granted this morning that we've, that we've squeezed everything we can out of this. It's very important. The rest of the passage will not make sense if we don't get this under our belt. And the reason why I want to use caution here is because when we read, and Jesus uh, said to the Jews who had believed in him, these are people who claim to be believers, which puts them, or should I say, which puts us kind of in the same position. He's not talking to the Pharisees, which are known to be his enemies. He's not talking to his family. He's talking to a group of people who've listened to what he has to say, and they say they believe him. Best thing I know that's closest would be a church. It's full of people who say, I claim to be a Christian. But we all know that not everybody who claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian. And not everybody who makes that claim abides in the Word of God or is truly a disciple. It's a mixed multitude of sorts. So it's as if this passage is speaking to us this morning to make sure that we understand what's going on. This hard saying could actually apply specifically to us. So what does he mean by this? And the building pattern that we've seen and at least three times now, that it's possible that there are people who say they believe in Jesus. He looks at them, sees their heart, and even though they might not know it, Jesus knows that it's not enough. It should be some of the most terrifying thoughts to make us want to consider ourselves and whether or not, hey, uh, is this me? Is it not? Do I abide? Am, am I real? I think it's, a, it's an important thing uh, for a communicator, a teacher, Sunday school teacher, pastor, anybody who teaches the Word of God, even if that's mom in the floor with her kids in their home, uh, to be a student of human behavior and to know how to explain the way things that are described in a setting that's 2,000 years removed to us and be able to put that in a way where we can understand what, what's going on. Uh, and, and you do this by way of illustrating. You're relating. We talked about this in our membership class today. You're taking the wasness of the scriptures and you need to attach that somehow to the isness of right now, right? And uh, thinking about this and kind of throwing it back and forth over the weekend, how to explain this. What do we make of these people who say they believe and it's apparent to us as we read that, that they don't. But they think they do. Uh, when I was younger, in a period of life many of you have been through, uh, called adolescence, uh, which is a real dicey point in your life because you're no longer a child, but you're not an adult yet. And you're given more and more responsibility to make decisions for yourself you begin to take on more and more of the, the direction of your own life. You make a lot of mistakes because, again, you're not an adult. But it's, you're called upon to do these things because you're not a child anymore. And uh, growing up in that stage, you try on a lot of stuff, don't you? Certain things that you might think you want to be a part of. And some of those things fit pretty well. And later down the road, they become a major part of your own personality, who you are, what you do, what you say. 
But then there's some things that you try on and they don't fit so well. And the fun part about being an adolescent is usually people will tell you, that ain't you. Uh, in fact, it's kind of a, a joke, but it just doesn't fit. And we had a term in uh, high school, and usually each generation has their terms for stuff, and, and uh, those things usually expire, and the next generation doesn't know what they're talking about. But if, if there was a, a person who claimed to know uh, something that they didn't, or carried themselves as if they had skills that we know they did not, and they, sometimes they just very desperately want to be part of something because it's a big something and everybody else is a part of it, but it just isn't them. We would call them a poser. You ever heard that? I think surfers actually started that. So I'm wondering, do we have a bunch of posers here? They just want in on what's happening, but really down in their heart. This isn't theirs and it's not fitting yet. But maybe they think that it fits. There's other ways we can see this. This is our behavior. And we don't grow out of this just because we're no longer adolescents. I'll use another illustration. And this might get me in trouble. But usually those are the good ones, right? <laughs> I don't remember the first time I ever saw a Salt Life sticker. Or the t-shirts. I don't know if you're familiar with this. You see them everywhere now. I do remember their explosion in popularity. And especially in a place like this where we live a couple hours from the coast. A lot of people spend time at the ocean. It's a very popular brand now. And you can't go shopping at the beach without seeing it everywhere. But think about that concept. It's just two words. There's salt and there's life. And I think the idea behind it all is to capture the type of lifestyle or interest or even affinity that someone has to the beach. They like to go to the beach. Spend time at the beach. They like the way the air smells. And they would call that salt life. Right? I wish I'd have invented it. I really do. I think those guys that did are very wealthy. But you've got to admit. And I think people would readily admit. There is a difference. Probably a big difference. Between someone who is born at the beach and lived at the beach all their life, make their living at the beach, they fish at the beach, they, 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 they might actually spend more time in a boat than they spend on the shore. Uh, or maybe it's a sport, they, they, they surf, but they're in and on and around the water. I think the word for that is a waterman. It's a big difference between that and somebody who goes on vacation. They call that a tourist. And there's usually a big difference between Salt lifers, real salt life, and tourism. But what's interesting to me is the fact that more... Which group do you think buys more t-shirts and more stickers? <laughs> the people who actually live there? The watermen? Or the people who like to visit? And maybe you've noticed something like this. This is kind of a made-up story, but not really. You go to the beach, and it's packed with people. It's the middle of the peak season. There's so many people you can't even turn around and think. And all you really want to do is get out on the water. So you're in line at the boat ramp behind this big long line of, of uh, very expensive toys. 
And there's really no requirements uh, for having any of those other than you can pay for one. If you can pay for one, you can have one. But it doesn't mean you know what to do with it. And the line is very long. You're all waiting on someone to get that boat off the trailer into the water. It's taking forever, and it's obvious. This is their first rodeo. (laughs) They've not done this before, and everybody's getting mad. And maybe they didn't understand how the boat ramp works and how the turns go. But it's usually that guy who's got the biggest Salt Life sticker in the whole parking lot (laughs) on his truck, right? He might be so Salt Life, he's got a little tiny Salt Life sticker on his big Salt Life sticker. He's just that guy. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But all the locals know he's not Salt Life. He's a tourist. And we're glad he's here because he just paid us a lot for a fishing trip or whatever else. But there's a difference. And when Jesus says, he who abides in my word, lives in my word, stays in my word, that word changes everything that they do. All their decisions are forced through the filter of that word. That is a true disciple. Not someone who's got a sticker that says they're a disciple, but isn't a disciple. In other words, Jesus is saying that it's not how loud one shouts their claims, but how consistent he lives the basics. That's a huge difference. Put another way, there is a cost involved. And the cost is not nothing. Jesus then adds that what has become well known, but often misused saying, the rest of it, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So let's parse out that portion of it. The and connects us back to the abiding in the word, which is the mark of a true disciple. You will know the truth, and the truth in this context is what he'd been talking about previously about the I am he. They didn't get that. He is who he said he was. That's the truth. And that truth will set you free. We learn more of what Jesus means by this as we read further, but Let's hold that for now and hear the response of these people who claim to believe him after he has said these simple things. Abide in the word, true disciple. You shall know the truth, the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly. I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So here's another clear example of Jesus talking up here and everybody listening down here. They're off again. He's talking spiritual. They're thinking material. He's talking about sin, which enslaves us, spiritually speaking, which has eternal consequences. They're talking about Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. How's it right arm, left arm? You know the song, don't you? Yeah, that, that's what they're thinking. Father Abraham. Jesus admits, as far as their genetics, that is true. But it's the spiritual behavior of Abraham that made Abraham special. He had faith, right? It was counted to him as righteousness. He gets into that as we move along. 
But when Jesus says everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, he's referring to a spiritual enslavement, the enslavement of sin. And in any case, everyone is a slave to sin because everyone is a sinner. So the Jews are using this ancestry as a stumbling block. They don't know they're stumbling over it, but they're stumbling over it. That's a very Jewish sentiment. We've got our own things that we stumble over. Well, I was born in church. I was the son of a pastor. Well, I go to church all the time. There's all kinds of things that we'll use to prop ourselves up materially to avoid a discussion about our lack spiritually. And that's what's going on in this exact conversation. So let's take a moment, kind of like a timeout. It's good every now and then to do this, to understand theologically what Jesus has introduced with this idea of slavery and specifically to that of sinfulness. None of us are born with a clean white shirt. We like to think that. You know, the gospel according to Oprah is that everyone's basically good and in some way, somehow, we go bad. But the Bible teaches us that None of us is born with a clean white shirt. None of us is righteous, no, not one. It's not that we just occasionally get in a mess and that's what's church for because they can help us avoid getting stains on our shirt. No, church is where we meet the one who came to give us a completely new shirt, his own, which would be Jesus. So that's where we come from. We're all sinners, it's our nature. And theology also tells us that we sin necessarily, but not by compulsion. We necessarily sin. It's necessary that we sin because we're sinners. But it's never by compulsion. No one's making us sin. We learn this in the New Testament. God doesn't tempt us. He wasn't tempted, and He doesn't tempt anyone to sin. We're drawn away of our own lusts, which are there naturally because we're fallen people. So we necessarily sin, but not by compulsion. I know that sounds confusing, but as one classic theologian put it, it's called voluntary servitude. And there's examples all over our culture of voluntary servitude. Things that we know aren't good for us, that might even get stuck on us and we can't get rid of them. But it's not illegal, it's not necessarily moral, and we enjoy it. So we do it anyway. And then sometimes someone will come by and help us understand. Uh, we're not riding that anymore. That's riding us. But it's voluntary. Voluntary servitude. You could look at it a number of different ways. Would you agree that some people will, will throw out a word like addiction? That's another way of saying enslavement. Would you say that most of those people know that they're addicted or enslaved? Or would they not necessarily deny it, but just say, that's silly. It's what I want to do. Sometimes. And usually we're pretty good about pointing that out in each other. Things that don't necessarily bother us. Um, if... Starbucks needed only people like me on this planet. They'd have been out of business a long time ago. I'm not going to pay that much for coffee. I don't really like coffee, and I drink it black anyway. 
and the regular stuff, for the limited amount I drink, is just as good. But I know people who have to drive by there every day. And they pay more for their coffee than some people pay for their cigarettes. And I laugh at them, only because I know them. And I probably shouldn't laugh. You see, I'm doing it. I'm looking at them and saying, yeah, your thing you're stuck to is stupid. And they can look at me and say, yeah, but there's stuff you're stuck to. Like that dumb opinion you have. <laughs> and you don't even know it. But we live in this world where we want to say, I don't completely, totally have the freedom to be able to resist or say no to something. Then on the other hand, there are those who are very much attached to things that were uninvited, that were uncalled for, things they wouldn't necessarily want at all. And you might hear them say things like, you know what, I'm going to go to the beach and I'm going to leave my phone off. And then the next day in vacation, I'm, I know I said that, but I'm going to do it today. And then the vacation's over and they never turned it off. And they don't remember much of their vacation either. It's difficult to unplug from some of those things. Or, I've made up my mind, I'm not going to eat that. And then you eat it. That's not invited. Those are things you might call trivial things. But then there are certain things that I'm convinced that people have attractions to things they never ask for. But it's there. And then what do they do with it? And talking to them, they almost are crying out for help from something they're enslaved to. And they don't even know why. Jesus is talking to a whole group of them. But they're still fighting about it. They don't know yet. They haven't admitted. There's, there's enslavement going on here, but they don't call it that. And this is when I think that maybe an addict is the best illustration of all. And some of us are still very confused about that. And I am. And I've, I've known some. I grew up with a couple. And I've had the privilege or misfortune, however you want to look at it, of burying someone I grew up with younger than me that had a lot to do with an addiction. And uh, those of us who should know better like to just say, why don't they make up their mind and just stop? But those of us who are a little closer to it might say, it's not that easy. That's not how that works. What do we do with that? Um, we can't just stop. And any of us that are truthful about our sin nature know that even though we're saved, we still sin. We're still regularly saying, I'm sorry, I did that again. Um, I could make an assessment of all my problems. You could make an assessment of all your problems. Things that you struggle with. Things you try to climb over. And then all of the mess that just comes along with trying to get from point A to point B in life. Raise your children. Make a living wage. All these things. You just make a whole big fat list of things you wish weren't there. But if all of those problems are not underneath the biggest problem. And unless you understand that that biggest problem is the same as. My biggest problem, my biggest problem at my house with my family 
is me. Your biggest problem is you. And that's the reason Jesus left heaven as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, including yours. And that's what these men don't get yet. But that's what he's tracking toward. And he's just getting started. Look at verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. In other words, they don't live it. They're not abiding there. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. So he's, he's placed a separation between he and his father and his obedience, and these people and their father and their obedience. But he's not talking about the same father. Now, this is the first time he says it, and I don't know that they catch it yet. But he's drawing a line between himself and them, between his father and theirs. Verse 39 Skipping a bit. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. Think about that. I mean, who was Abraham? He's the guy who had faith enough to actually kill his own son. Right? These people don't have enough faith. And they're actually contemplating killing God's son. So they don't look like Abraham's children. As far as the apple falling from the tree. Now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And their father's not Abraham by the time he gets to that statement. So you can tell they're probably about at the boiling point. They say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. wonder what they mean by that. And usually you save your, your biggest weapons for the most heated of battles, right? If God were your father, you'd love me, Jesus says, for I came from God and I am here. Not of my own accord, he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't hear my words. So there's almost some sort of slight implied in that remark, whether or not they knew exactly what went on with Jesus' background. There's a rumor that... Joseph's not his father. And Jesus uses that very thing to show their hatred of him, proves that they're not his father's children. You notice that? Hey, if you love the father, you'd love me, because I'm his son. Sort of make us brothers. But that's not what they want to do. Then Jesus says something that will surely be taken as hate speech, something that will offend and infuriate. But something that is certainly true and will explain everything regarding their problem, their slavery, and their heart. And we can just go ahead and say our problem, our slavery, slavery and our heart. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character. For he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You remember when we were introduced to the devil in the Garden of Eden? He was, he was known then for what he is now. He's a liar. He's only got one trick. He's been using that trick since the beginning. 
Because there's no truth in him, his native language is lies. Because of our sinful lying heart, we by default do not understand the truth and we do not believe. Where do we fit? And this is one of those things in theology that can be tough because it's so ingrained, we hear it all the time, we're all God's children. From the very words of Jesus, that is not theologically true. Without or apart from salvation, which is described as adoption, we belong to the devil's family. As if the whole planet was given over to him after two people sinned. To be settled up at redemption with Jesus who would die in their place. To put back what fell apart in the Garden of Eden. And then verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears these words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Almost seems as if it's getting circular here now. Okay? You're the devil's family. You can't understand what I'm saying. So why does Jesus keep telling them they need to believe and abide in his word and things to Nicodemus like you need to be again born? Well, because he's calling people to himself. We saw that in the sixth chapter as well. But don't miss what Jesus is actually saying here. Which one of you convicts me of sin? How many human beings could say that sentence in all the history of the world? Maybe two, and only for a short time. But from that point on, there's only one person on this planet that could ever say that, and that would be Jesus. And that's the one thing that qualifies him to do what he's here to do. And that is to die in our place to what was it he said he was going to do to those people? If you abide in me, in my word, you're my true disciple, and you shall know the truth that I am he. And what? The truth will set you free. But then there's uh, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's what he means by slavery and freedom. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. We kind of skipped over this earlier. The son remains forever. So what he's saying is the slave doesn't have any rights to the household. He can be bought or sold. He can come or go. But he doesn't have any claim to the land or the inheritance or any of that. But the son remains there forever. And notice in your translation, most of these are the same. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son, that's a lowercase s-o-n, remains forever. Verse 36. So if the son, capital S-O-N, that's Jesus, sets you free, you'll be free indeed. The only one that can open the cell to turn you loose is the one who no one can, con can convince or condemn of sin. That's what he's talking about here. But before he ever told anybody, I'll let you out of prison, that's why I'm here. He first looked into their eyes. Just feature that. You've got the man who created everything. From John we read, he created everything without him was not anything made that was made. Every person on this planet he knows 
intimately as their author, their creator. He's looking into their eyes and he's telling them the truth. You are of your father, the devil. You're lost. And you're enslaved to your lostness. And unless you believe, I can't help you. These are hard sayings, aren't they? This one goes for everybody. There's only one way. And that's through what Jesus does. It took me quite a long time to see my lostness that way. Is after I left home. But sometime in college. And up until that point, Christianity was basically just uh, keep your nose clean, you're a pastor's kid. You know the rules. It's pretty simple. And you don't have the type of temperament uh, to want to push back on that because you don't have the guts that your brother does. <laughs> and it was pretty much a list of do's or don'ts. And, and looking at it as if the whole thing is trying to keep your shirt clean. And I had a pretty clean one. Looking at it that way. But when I got out on my own and started trying to do simple things like just have my devotions regularly. Not think of myself as superior to other people that don't know as much as me. Not looking at people as less than me or anyone else because their decisions are poor. Their sin is more offensive. Uh... I learned real quick, and I seem to be learning it with every year I age. I'm defective. I can't do it. I can't even live what I preach here for long. I can't always be kind to my wife. I discipline my children incorrectly for the wrong reason. I have to say I'm sorry. All things that I've seen everyone else do... And why in the world would I ever expect to be perfect? But for some reason I do. When I can't. I'm lost. And the more lost I get, the more I need Jesus. And at this point, these folks here, they don't need Him yet. They're Abraham's kids. And they've got it covered. But all that stuff will get kicked out eventually. All the props will be gone. And young folks, I'm talking to you. You're going to have to decide whether or not you need Jesus. Whether or not you're lost. Just realizing and recognizing that you can't do this without Him. You are of your father, the devil. And without Jesus taking your place on a cross, and you knowing what that means, you'll die in your sins, just like he talked about last week. These are tough sayings, hard sayings. But this is why Jesus came. Now, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. I mentioned that we would end our service today with, uh, with our Advent wreath. And uh, I want to read you something, and then we're going to sing our last hymn. And while we sing the hymn, I'm going to light one of those candles. And that'll be our benediction as we leave. But what this is, is a storybook Bible that we would read to our kids. We still do sometimes. But uh, I think this is a perfect way to set up what we're going to be looking at the entire month. 
And what we're right in the middle of the most dramatic throes of this plan of redemption in our study through John. We've been beat up today. We've been told we're the devil's kids, right? We need some encouragement. We need some hope. And that's what that first candle's all about. It's called the hope candle. The candle of promise. There's someone coming who can fix this, who can adopt you out of the devil's family and put you into the family of God. Put a ring on your finger to absolutely blow your heart and your mind, not with the thought of, you know, oh, I don't want to go to hell, but I'm actually chosen by this man. He, he loves me enough to come here and die to take the likes of me. Well, this is how the story begins. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it and they show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, and sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run. At times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it is true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves His children and came to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers His name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see the beautiful picture and this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. That's the beginning of the Christmas story. That's why he's here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and interest to come and see this child upon whom everything would depend. And when it's clear, when we see it, Lord, would we bow our hearts, our knees, may our tongues confess that this baby, Jesus, is the Christ, the Son of God. And may in believing we have life in His name. We ask this in Your name. Amen.